Well, hello and welcome to another in our series, Spiritual Foundations. You know, I was just thinking this week that Jesus himself, of course, used illustrations in his parables that related to spiritual foundations. You remember the account where he tells the parable about the, the person who builds their house on the solid rock and the winds and storms come, but they're secure and they're safe. The other person who doesn't build on a good foundation and his, his story is about the sand and the result was a really negative one. Let me read that account to you. It's found in uh, Matthew 7:24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So Jesus' point here is if uh, you're someone who's listening to his words and putting them into practice, he's saying you're building solid foundations in your life that when the storms of life come, you know, you're in a secure place. You're not going to waver. You're going to remain firm with a robust faith. And the difficulties of life are something you're going to conquer and get through. But he's saying exactly the opposite. If you don't build your house on healthy spiritual foundations that he's teaching about, then it's, it's going to be a very different story. As the storms of life come, you're really going to struggle. Well, uh, we're doing this series because... My heart is that we all have strong spiritual foundations, that we could be robust Christians in the face of whatever comes across our path. And of course, here in Melbourne, we've faced a lot of storms of life over this last couple of years. Let's make sure we've got good foundations in our life to keep us strong. So far in this series, we've looked at God's word, prayer, worship. Last week, we looked at love. This week, my theme is the giving heart, the giving heart. And I want to base this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And the occasion is one where the Apostle Paul, he's uh, talking to the Corinthian church, the Grecian Corinthian church, a large church. Um, a church, as you'll remember, had a lot of problems that uh, he needed to deal with in his first document to them. Uh, and uh, it seems, uh, by what we can understand from church history, they did seem to respond to that, and they're in a much healthier place by the time he writes his second document to them. And uh, he's asking them to consider the Macedonian churches. They were really struggling. You know, they, they, needed, they needed financial aid at this time, uh, both for simple things like just, you know, having food, uh, having accommodation, but also for their ministries to continue expanding. And he's saying, look, guys, could you really give generously to the needs that we're finding there? And so consequently, we see in both chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Second Corinthians some really fantastic principles uh, about the giving heart, about that, that heart that's generous and really wants to pour in to the ministries of God. Well, let's uh, get some context here. I'll read the first five verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help 
And I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Acacia were ready to give and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them into action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and to finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. And so you get the idea of what uh, Paul's speaking into. He's soon going to be visiting the Corinthian church, uh, they've been very generous in what they're saying. They are going to give in support of the Macedonian churches and Paul's coming to let that gift, but he's encouraging them to be ready, you know, when we arrive to have the full amount that you might give with that real cheerful, generous heart as, as he's predicting they will. The, next, the very next verse that comes up, verse 6, is where we start some great principles here about this whole area of having a giving heart, having a generous heart. We're going to look here at uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. It says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And we see this theme in Scripture a lot. This concept, uh, Jesus used the concept of farming quite often in his illustrations. Here Paul is using it as well. He's saying just like a farmer, a farmer who's generous in his seed sowing, if he sows a lot of seed, plows up heaps of fields, lots of seed is sown, in the right conditions he'll reap a big harvest. Uh, but if he doesn't sow much, doesn't matter what the conditions are, he's not going to reap much. And Paul is saying here this relates to, to the, the generous heart, the the, the hearts of giving heart is going to be one that is going to sow a lot into God's kingdom. You know, and um, the result is you can expect a harvest. God's going to bless you for that. The same is, is truly saying that the, the person who's stingy when it comes to the things of God, well, they're not going to get a rich harvest. They're not going to be blessed in the same way that the generous person will be. Um, the passage actually goes on the previous chapter and says something very similar. 2 Corinthians 8, 7, talking here about the Corinthian church. And as I said, you know, they've become a strong church since the first letter. He writes this, verse 7, 8, 7. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And so what's he saying to them? He's saying to the Corinthians, hey, you guys excel in faith. And there's all manner of miracles seem to be uh, uh, recorded about the Corinthians. You know, uh, that was not uncommon in the Corinthian church. So you, you've got strong faith to believe God for great things. You have a deep, robust faith in Jesus. Secondly, he says, your speech is strong. You know, you know how to preach the gospel. You know how to teach the word of God. He says, your knowledge is also solid, you know, uh, because of... I guess his first letter to them, they've taken on board that theology and they're now in a good, healthy theological place, good knowledge. Um, their earnestness, they were passionate Christians, zealous for the things of God. You know, they're enthusiastic about doing the Lord's work. He also mentions love. And of course, uh, love was something that in the previous letter, he actually spent a whole chapter explaining what love looks like. Now he's saying, you guys are now excelling in this, this practice, this foundation of love. 
But then he adds, also excel in this grace of giving. He's saying this is another important foundation for you to excel in. And it's interesting, he says excel. He doesn't just say get better at being generous, having that generous heart, but he's saying excel in it. You know, do it to, a, to an extent which is really quite overwhelming. Clearly, God is with you, doing it as if it's just stepping out as an act of faith. Jesus, too, used some very similar terminology when he talked about this idea of giving. He says this, 638, Give, and it will be given to you, from Luke's Gospel. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So here um, uh, Jesus is saying, as recorded in, in Luke, that if you give a good measure, if you give a good measure, God is going to give back a good measure to you. But if you give a small measure, God will only give you a small measure back. But his encouragement is give, and it will be given to you. A good measure. So much is going to be overflowing from your lap. It's like the cup overflows. It's going to give you more than you contain as you're generous with your giving. And remember our opening passage today, we're talking about foundations where Jesus was saying in his analogy, you know, those who put into practice my teaching, they're like the person who builds their house on good foundations, you know, and they'll be robust in the face of storms. And here is one of the foundations he's suggesting people build into their life, one of the giving heart, the generous heart. And as you build that foundation in, you can be cure when the storms of life come. Number one, my first point, God wants you to be a generous giver. Number one, God wants you to be a generous giver. Just going to make three major points today. You know, and I think in terms of this um, generous giving, this giving heart lifestyle, there's many people I could draw from, many famous people indeed. Uh, one of the ones I've just been reflecting on this week is uh, a chap called Rockefeller. Now, I, I first heard that name when I was a, a little kid, you know. Uh, dad, my dad actually was pretty generous, you know. I'd, I'd often um, be out with him shopping somewhere and, and spot something I really wanted. Dad would very often buy it for me. I mean, I was very close to Dad, so I probably, um, you know, got perhaps more than I should at times. But I remember one time being in this shop and there was this very cool Lego set. It was a sci-fi Lego set. And I, I was really taken with it. And I thought, man, this is massive. It's so cool. And I, and I said to Dad, oh, this would be awesome because I won't just make what, what's here. Like, I'll make all sorts of other stuff out of these Lego blocks, trying to convince him it'd be good to buy it for me. And uh, Dad looked at the price and he said, who do you think I am, Rockefeller? <laughs> Lego blocks were even more expensive back then. Um, and, uh, and I used to hear that from Dad every so often. He'd say this phrase, who do you think I am, Rockefeller? I had no idea who Rockefeller was. I was just a little kid. Uh, but as a young adult, I actually read the biography of Rockefeller. It's an interesting story. Uh, this guy uh, just grew up in a farm. And uh, so he didn't kind of start with uh, wealth in his background. His parents did okay, but they're just running a regular farm. Um, but this uh, little chap, seemed, even as a, a little boy, had a nouse for making money. So for, he's just seven years old. And he, he spots on their farm out in the bush, you know, uh, a bush turkey sitting on eggs. And he keeps an eye on it. And when the chickens hatch, he catches all the chickens. 
and he rears them up. And so when Christmas comes, you know, he's selling all these big turkeys. You know, he makes quite a bit of money out of it. And he just kept doing things like that over the next three years until he'd saved up $50. And now I know what you're thinking, that's not much. <laughs> but back in the mid-1800s, when he was a little kid, $50 was equivalent to 10 weeks' average salary. The average American at that time got paid $5 a week. He saved up 50 bucks, this little kid. So about 10 weeks' salary, a lot of dough. And anyway, one of the neighbouring farmers had had a bad harvest and he was struggling and he, wanted, he needed money to replace, you know, to, to re-sow, to redo another season. Um, but he didn't have enough dough to do it. And he tried to borrow money from the banks. There was going to be really high interest. And so he was, you know, he was wondering what to do. And John Rockefeller's dad said to him, why don't you go down to our neighbouring farmer and offer to let him borrow your $50 and, uh, you know, you charge a percentage of interest that you think's fair. So John did, little kid, 10 years old, off he trots talks with the farmer, offers to let him borrow the money for 7% interest. Well, it was a lot better than what the banks would offer, so the farmer took him up on it. And 12 months later, John gets the money back with that 7% interest. And just 11 years old, this little chap says, <laughs> I'm not going to work for money. I'm going to make money work for me. And he certainly did. So he finishes school about 16 and uh, gets his first job as a clerk. And he's earning four bucks a week, uh, which is fairly typical for a clerk at that time. Anyway, John makes a decision before God. And he says, you know, Lord, I'm always going to give the first 10% of my salary into my local Baptist church. You have to come first in every area of my life, including my finances. So he makes that decision as a 16-year-old kid. Well, um, he kept on earning more and more money in that position. They upped his salary several times to the point where when he was 19, he was getting paid 11 bucks 50. And 11 bucks 50 a week at that time, was, that was a really good salary. Well, he approaches his boss again, as he had before, and said, I think I'm worth more than that. And uh, he, he was actually, he worked very hard. And he was helping his boss make plenty of dough. But at the same time, his boss had a limit. And he said, look, John, you're on a very good salary now. I'm not upping it anymore. Uh, so John left and started his own business with another partner selling commodities. Uh, that made him a fair bit of money, but he really, that wasn't what he wanted to do. He had his eye on the oil industry. And so he did a heap of research, wanted to know the, the, the whole process of, of how you know, the oil was manufactured into petrol and that sort of thing, and really wanted to be thoroughly read on the topic. And as he saved up enough money, he started to buy into the oil industry. And uh, so he lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and it ended up, as he bought in, it got to the point where that state of America, John controlled 90% of the oil production. And uh, it was said of him by this time that his local Baptist church, where he fellowshiped at, where he tithed, they were receiving from John an absolute fortune. They had so much money, they just had never had any needs for staff or building extensions. <laughs> they just had a ton of dough. Um, well, John kept on building, I guess, really what became his empire. And so he kept on developing his business to the point where he owned 90% of all oil production in the United States. Standard Oil, over 40 years, became the most well-managed, lucrative business in the world, and John became the wealthiest man on the planet. And he continued to be that generous person. But he was always careful with his money. So he didn't just give it away because he had lots. 
He was always prayerful about where he gave it. For instance, he had a university. Chicago University asked him, you know, um, is there any chance you would support uh, our vision here? We really want our university to get to the point where it's a nationwide recognised university, one of the best in the land, but to do this we really need to improve and expand our facilities. We need a lot more dough to make this happen. Uh, would you consider sponsoring us? And John said, oh, I'll take it to the Lord in prayer. He went away, prayed about it, and he came back and he said to this to them, you know what, I'll support you, the full amount that you want, but I have a stipulation. If I'm going to support you, I want written into this contract that you will only employ committed Christians at your university. And the reason John had said this, because he saw this as a, a real kingdom-building thing, he thought, look, if those lectures are all Christians, as the students come through, there's gonna, the gospel's going to go out. The kingdom of God's going to be built. Well, the board of the university, several of them were Christians anyway, they, said they accepted that. And that's the type of person he was. He wanted to give his money freely if he thought it would build God's kingdom. Well, John remained a committed Christian to the end of his days at uh, 93 years old. His family uh, knew something was wrong because he had a big household where the, the kids and the grandkids all lived on the, the estate. And, uh, you know, granddad or dad hadn't come down for morning devotions, which they did as a family every morning. And uh, he didn't arrive and sure enough, he'd passed away uh, in the night um, a man who had really lived out what we're talking about here to the extreme. Perhaps we can't think of anyone more extreme than this. Where he knew what it was to sow generously and he also reaped generously. Second portion of the passage, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. It says this, Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. So here it talks about the idea of giving is not something's willy-nilly, ad hoc, but actually you make a decision. It's thoughtful. You make a decision about how much you're going to give, you know, or when you're going to give, etc. So let's look at those two questions. First of all, well, when did the early church give? Uh, well, let's have a look here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16.2. It says this. Paul writes, On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Got the idea? Probably no surprise there. Um, the early church, on the first day of the week, that's the Sunday, were encouraged to set aside a sum of money to pour into God's work. Uh, now, I probably need to explain. I know that the Jewish people, of course, of the Old Testament, they met on the Sabbath, the, the Saturday. But um, the early church, because Jesus rose on the first day of the week, because he, he appeared to his disciples on more than one occasion on the first day of the week, that became their primary day of worship. And not that they didn't meet on other occasions, of course, but that became the day. And so Paul says that makes sense, that that's the day you bring your offering. Often people at that time were paid daily or weekly as well. Um, of course, today many people are paid monthly. Uh, but the crossover is we would think that one, whenever you're paid, fortnightly or monthly, that you choose then at that point to say, well, I will give a portion of this as an offering to God into his work. Oh, well, that's when to give. Um, the other question is, well, how much should I give? And one of the patterns we see so much in Scripture is this one. I'll read it from Leviticus 27.30. It says, A tithe of everything from the land whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, 
belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make substitution. If anyone does make substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. So you got the picture. God's saying to the nation of Israel at this time, uh, a tenth, a tithe rather, from all the produce of the land, whether the grain that you're growing, whether the fruits, whether the wine you're making, whether your sheep, whether your cattle, a tenth of it, is to be set aside for the laws. Why do I say a tenth from the word tithe? Well, you think of the description in there. It says at one point, um, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod. The way they used to count their animals, they would get a narrow portion, perhaps with a couple of rocks either side, and bring the animals through one by one. And as they're bringing them through, they'd be counting them. Well, the pattern was every tenth one was the Lord's. It was holy, set apart for the temple, for sacrifices and you name it. One in ten. And so this was the pattern. When it talks about substitution, I guess God knew what some people might be in the habit of doing. And so God doesn't really give room for where they can say, oh, well, there's three dodgy animals there. They look pretty sick. God can have those. Or there's a blind one there. That's probably going to fall in a ditch and die. God can have that one. Or there's a lame one there. Well, you know, that, that's probably going to not last too long. God can have that one. Well, what, what he's saying is actually, well, you can give those if you want, but you still need to give one in 10 animals on top of that. Uh, in other words, the encouragement is just do what I'm asking. Try not to cut corners and do other things. Give one in 10 of what the land is producing. Now, of course, I mean, we, we don't today, um, for the most part, most of us don't have our, our uh, resources tied up in crops and in uh, vineyards and in sheep and in cattle. Um, rather, we live in a monetary system, which they did largely in the New Testament as well. Um, and so what does it mean for us to give a tithe? Well, really, very simply put, it just simply means we give a tenth of our resources. Uh, at its simplest, we're, we're paid $1,000 a week as an income. I'll just use round figures. You, we get paid 1000 bucks a week. It means you choose to give 100 into God's work. You get paid 4000 a month. You choose to give 400 into God's work. Now, I know some of you are thinking right away, oh, well, Lee, that's just crazy, mate. You know, I like the idea of putting some of my resource into God's kingdom, but look, we're, we're barely making ends meet, mate. You know, I mean, we, we're, we're struggling to get by, struggling to pay our bills. There's no way we could afford to give any more. I mean, some of you probably feel like a pelican. You ever felt like a pelican? Have you? Ever felt like a pelican? Every direction you turn, it's like there's an enormous bill in front of you. <laughs> I feel like that too sometimes. But the reality is, friends, we have to get our head around the way God talks about financial giving. He, you know, we look at it as an expenditure. You know, uh, I can't afford it. But actually God teaches about it as an investment. Why do I say investment? Because God time and time again promises a return. We saw the extreme of that with someone like um, uh, Rock, John Rockefeller. But the fact is, there's many other stories I could have told where people have lived that out to extreme and yet they've seen that actually it wasn't the ex expenditure to give into God's work. It ultimately became an investment. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm realistic. Look, I've been in churches long enough to know that in any church, you're going to have some people that you're not going to give anything anytime. You know, you, you have no desire to ever give anything into church ministry. I realise that. And there'll be others who will give very little. And you've done that forever. You've only ever given a very small amount. And there will be some that, you know, you do give a reasonable amount. And then finally, you'll have some that are actually tithers. You give a full 10% of what God blesses you with financially in your salary. Now, the reality is in most churches, there might be something like perhaps 20% of the people are, are tithers. And they actually really carry all the finances of the church pretty much. Uh, the rest of the congregation doesn't really contribute very much. And I know tithers always like pastors to preach on, on financial giving because sometimes they get sick of carrying the burden themselves when the, there's so many in the church that may not contribute or very little. Well, let me say this to you. You know, you might be at a place where you're thinking, look, um, I give a little bit. Would you have the face to step out and say, actually, I could probably give more than what I give? Hearing what we're saying today, that actually it's an investment, not an expenditure, could you actually give more? And perhaps some of you that are at a place where you do give a reasonable amount, but could you stretch your faith enough to say, I'm going to become a tither. I'm going to step up to the point where I'll start tithing. You know, because in the journey of, of ministry, um, we have so many practical needs in any setting. And one of the realities of financial giving is it so often addresses those needs. Now, look, I remember a guy saying to me once, hey, Lee, look, I tried that tithing thing once and I tithed for a couple of months and I couldn't see God bless me financially in any way, so I stopped that. Well, you know, it, it can work like that. It can be immediate, but often it's not. Remember Jesus' analogy? It was that of a farmer. Now, uh, James has a little moment where he talks about farmers in chapter 5 of James and he says, you know, the farmer sows his seed and he waits patiently for the the spring or the autumn rains and only after those rains does then the crops grow and he gets that harvest he's got to wait patiently it takes months and i want to suggest that analogy is very much how god's blessing operates when it comes to financial giving uh you know initially there might not be an immediate response but over time and i've talked with goodness knows how many tithers about this where over time people see oh my goodness God has blessed me financially in this way or in that way. And over time, you see that God actually looks after you because you've been generous in his kingdom. It gets affirmed in this very chapter. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. There it is. 9 verse 8 of 2 Corinthians saying that God will see it that as you're generous, he will give you enough to keep on abounding in every good work. So my second point is this, friends. God wants you to be a decisive giver. God wants you to be a decisive giver. Make a decision about it. You know, when I'm going to give, how much I'm going to give. One more point. Let's have a look at uh, 9.7. I'll just read the first part of the verse again. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
So Paul's written there that he wants the person not to just give under a sense of compulsion or even be a bit reluctant about it, but actually he wants the attitude right as well. He's encouraging the right attitude. Give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. I know you might be saying to me, well, Lee, I don't ever part with money cheerfully. <laughs> you know, I was in a church once in, um, in Sydney. It was back when I lived in Sydney, um, a while ago now, probably back in 2002, around that time. But I was visiting a few churches over um, the kind of holiday period. And one of the churches I visited was Parramatta C3 Church. And um, Pamela and I were there. Great worship time, really, really dynamic worship. And then the announcement person got up and started to share a few announcements. And as she was speaking after the announcement, she sort of then said, and now it's time to take up our offering. And as she said that, the church members cheered. I do not exaggerate. Most of them cheered. And uh, I thought, mate, that's cheerful giving. (laughs) And I must admit, I thought to myself, I was a bit sceptical, which is kind of slightly my nature, to be honest, I think. A bit sceptical, and I thought, yeah, well, they've got the cheerfulness down, but I wonder if they've got the the generosity and the decisiveness down in their giving. So anyway, I was having a chat with the pastor afterwards. And to give you an idea of the size of the church, someone came up to us when we were pasting, just one of his members, and he'd done the head count, and he just said, 167 uh, adults here today and so you know I knew exactly the numbers so that's about their, their size not, not a really big church um, and um, we chatted a bit more and I said I actually said to him you know you're, you're, uh, your congregation is very cheerful in the giving and he said yeah yeah look they've got a great attitude towards generosity a lot of giving hearts in our church and I said um, then I kind of you know wanted to quiz him a little bit and I said what do you think the percentage is uh, that's collected in the offerings what percentage of people's incomes and he said well I got a fair idea I mean as you know Parramatta's uh, not not known as a wealthy area where there are some wealthy people here but we're more western suburbs so it's a bit more working class but you know um, I would estimate from the average salaries in this area our our offering is actually approximately 10% of what people earn obviously some give more some give less but I reckon it'd be around about there knowing the average salaries I'll tell you what, I was impressed. I said, really? Well, well, well um, per week, what would that be? And he said, uh, about $18,000. You remember, only 167 people going there, $18,000 a week. And uh, you've got to remember too, that was like nearly about 20 years ago. So the, the value of the Australian dollar has gone up 50% since then. So we're talking what would be equivalent to now $27,000. Per week, a church of 167 in attendance. It's quite phenomenal, isn't it? But you see, any church where the average person is tithing, it's going to be a phenomenal offering. And of course, they had this extraordinary venue. The pastor showed me all through it, all this complex that they'd, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd bought, bought a place, but then they'd completely revamped it, you know, and changed it all, made it into a very, very functional church center really really cool and because they had, they had that sort of offering they could employ a really solid staff team like the the media guy who was mixing sound he was full-time just doing media you know they had the resources to do every aspect of the vision they wanted and uh, simply because the people were so cheerful in their giving and they followed that through like i've discovered with their generosity and their decisiveness in giving Final point today, number three. God wants you to be a cheerful giver. God wants you to be a cheerful giver. 
Now, um, there is some reasons that follow on in the passage as to why we can actually be cheerful about giving, as foreign as that might be to us. <laughs> um, let's, let's have a look at these verses. 2 Corinthians 9.10, it says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Um, so here... Paul is actually saying, as you're generous, God is going to enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What's he saying? He's, going to, he's saying, really, you're going to be spiritually blessed. You're generous. You've got that giving heart into God's work. You're going to be spiritually blessed. And then he goes on to say, 2 Corinthians 9.11, the second, it's our first bit of the verse, you'll be made rich in every way, so you can be generous on every occasion. What a remarkable verse. You know, um, there we, you know, some people say, oh, God's not going to bless you financially. Really? You will be made rich in every way, which means it must include material wealth as well. So Paul is saying, as you are generous into God's work, you've got that giving heart, you'll be made rich in every way. Why? So you can be generous on every occasion. There it is in the scriptures. So secondly, you're going to be materially blessed. And one more verse. It goes on to say, uh, second part of verse 11, through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Got the third thing? God's going to be praised for it. You can see why he's saying this. He's saying, look, as a result of your generosity, you know, the Macedonian Christians, they're going to have the money they need to care for the poor. They're going to have the money they need to expand their ministries. You know, they're going to, you know, they're going to be praising God because of you. You know, God receives praise because of your generosity, Paul's saying. So can I say, another reason to be cheerful in our giving is because God will be blessed. Three things, three good reasons to be cheerful. Um, you're going to be uh, spiritually blessed. You're going to be materially blessed. And even God is going to be blessed with praises because of it. So friends, we've looked at B, three big points today. That God wants you to be a generous giver, decisive giver, and a cheerful giver. God wants you to be a generous giver, decisive giver, and a cheerful giver. Here we're talking about developing a giving heart as an important spiritual foundation to build into our life. And many strong Christians have it solidly in their life. And I know there's many generous people here in this church. You know, I think one of the reasons we hold on to our money so tightly at times is because we overvalue it. I overvalue it too. We, you know, we overvalue money. But actually, you know what? Money can't buy the most important things in life. Seriously. Let me read this poem to you. Money can buy you popularity. You can shout people drinks, pay for big parties, impress people, but you can't buy one true friend. Money can pay for all manner of toys. You know, the sports car, the boat, the holiday home. But it won't buy you happiness. Money can pay for the most respectable of private schools and university. But it will not give you the brains to pass the subjects. Money can pay for an expensive diamond ring, an elaborate wedding. But it can't buy you a lasting marriage. Money can pay for the best doctors, surgeons, medicines, but it can't buy you health. 
Money can buy you a king-size, comfortable bed with all the ornate trimmings, but it can't buy you peaceful sleep. Money can buy an expensive gold crucifix, diamond-studded, but it can't buy you a saviour. Shall we close in prayer? Father, here today as we're challenged with uh, one of the most challenging subjects that Christians face. I've heard that um, it's often said of Australians, the last part of their life to be converted is their wallet. But Father, we're serious about building strong spiritual foundations into our lives. Help us to do this. Help us to be responsive to your word. Help us to be like the people who build their house on the rock. And we could add, as an analogy, the rock of Jesus Christ, the rock of ages. Help us to build with a solid foundation all the principles, or we might say spiritual disciplines of this book, this Holy Scriptures. Help us to build them into our lives that we might be strong to face those storms of life. And so, Father, we think of these areas. Help us to be a people who are generous givers. Help us to be a people who are decisive givers. Help us to be a people who are cheerful givers. And in the journey of this, I pray for all of those who participate with those sorts of commitments to your kingdom. Bless them, Lord. Bless them, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.